Welcome, friends, to the first ever episode of the Firebrands Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Moore, and joining me around the table, we have a shitload of local New York atheists, agnostics, skeptics, humanists, freethinkers, scumbags, <laughs> brilliant philosophers, and the absolute most wonderful people I know. This podcast is all about expressing what we here in New York call the rage and passion we have about the world we live in. So I'm going to start off on my left. We have the great Andrew here. Andrew, say hi. Hello, everyone. And then we have Handjob Mike, our philosopher. A.K.A. <laughs> the thinker. Hello. We also have special guest from Lithuania, Ugna. Ugna, I give it to you. Here I am. Also, uh, the, the professor himself, Mitch J. Say hi, Mitch. Hello. <laughs> and our legal department is joining us. Angus, say hi. Hi. And special guest and wonderful friend of all of ours, Mr. John Kerbo. Hi. How are you? That's all you guys have? Just hi? Come on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> be passionate free podcast. Free will doesn't exist. There you go. That's, that's a bit better. All right, we're done. John Kerbo. <laughs> A.K.A. Social Science Warrior. Mm. Social Science oh. Warrior. Tongue in, tongue in cheek. You mean a social cheek. justice warrior? No, social science warrior. The idea is that science is a better way to arrive at answers mm. to human well-being. Oh. Oh. Well, we'll definitely get into that, but uh, yes. today, tonight's topic, our first show ever for our first topic, is what is the regressive left? Now, I'm a liberal and a progressive. I actually think that every human being should have the same rights and privileges as everyone else. Makes what? kind of sense to me. I know, it's crazy talk. How but dare you? There's a lot of uh, division on the, uh, on the left, on the liberal side, and John Kerbo, what is the regressive left? Yeah, so it's a... The idea here is not to create too much of a rigid way to single people out or become, you know, there's ways that words can become Orwellian. I think the idea is the core content of what it means to be a classical liberal. You believe in free speech, you believe in defending the minority. And we'll talk about this more, but in short, there, there's, there's certain people on the left that will avoid having certain conversations and that will shun and, and embarrass and, and slander people for raising certain topics. For example, the way minorities are treated in the Islamic world. And a lot of this is driven by ideology and dogmatism rather than free inquiry and rather than human compassion. It's not coming from a place of love or human well-being. And this is extremely important. And, and we'll talk about this more, but the idea is we need a schism within the left. A lot of people like Dave Rubin, Majid Nawaz, Sam Harris, others talk about it. But in a nutshell, that's what it is. It, it's the intellectual moral fabric of the left needs to be reclaimed by every liberal from people in their garage podcast to MSNBC, the, the whole spectrum needs to start talking about this and, and making make a noise and building bridges with people on the right. So yeah, that's that's kind of why I think about it. So Yeah, I think Majid Nawaz was one of the, the first to to use the term. Others yeah. said he coined the term. He, he coined yeah. the term. You know, he's Majid Nawaz for those who Majid don't know, Nawaz. Majid. 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 Thank Majid. you for the Don't be racist. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the correction on the pronunciation. Yeah. He is a reformer in the Islamic world. He yeah, is, uh, so I've talked to him a number of times. He's a, I think he's a really good guy. He, he basically was spent uh, a number of years in the Egyptian prison. He was former Islamist, which is different than a jihadi. A jihadi wants to use violence. Islamists want to impose political Islam. So he basically is uh, a main voice of, of, of reform within Islam to try to promote an Islam compatible with pluralism, free speech, human rights, women's rights, things like that. So the term regressive had been around for a while on the conservative side, but it had been used to simply say progressives are bad. What was missing here was a distinction, a very critical distinction, between within the left, saying that not everything bad coming from the left represents liberals. 
just like not everything bad coming from the right, not every kind of bigotry and simplicity and bullshit coming from the right represents conservatives. There needs to be distinctions on both sides. So Majid used the term regressive specifically to denote and demarcate a really important fault line. Will you stand up for human dignity in a consistent way based on human well-being and compassion regardless of someone's skin color and regardless of ideology and identity politics? So, so John, in other words, it's not allowing uh, cultural relativism, for example, to get people off the hook. Sort of, yeah, so uh, the relative thing is, basically, for example, I guess if we want to talk about identity politics and relativism, a lot of people tend to anchor their their conversation and their energy when talking about, you know, human, when talk about minorities, they'll anchor it around very limited narratives and ideology. For example, they say, well, Muslims are minorities, therefore, anything bad about Islam is somehow attacking Muslims as people, and because they're a minority in the West, therefore, we should continually avoid talking bad about Islam. And and people say that's a straw man, but really it plays out in such a way that makes it difficult to, to have the kind of nuance we need where you can say, yes, Muslims are a minority. We need to stand up for Muslims as people. We need to stand up for human dignity in a consistent way, but we also need to call out bad ideas. So someone could be a, a Syriac or a Christian, a Zoroastrian or a Yazidi in the Muslim world. And I've, I'm actually, I'm a veteran. I've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, and Africa, and I can tell you minorities are treated horribly in the Muslim world. This is a problem. We can talk about that while also standing up for Muslims. Now, with what Mitch was talking about... Wait, why do we want to stand up for Muslims? Well, I mean, we're, we're talking about standing up people. for, for I've people. I've heard they're people. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, the word Muslim is very vague. Yeah, but, but they believe in really crazy, horrible, evil things. So, so Yeah, but you don't, not, you don't have to agree with a person's ideology to stand up for their human rights. That's where you it know? comes in. You not can say, I do or don't agree with an ideology, but people are people. Everyone's deserving of dignity. No ideas above scrutiny. No humans being dignity. I think that's a magic quote too. But that's the idea. So you can unpack this and say, we can criticize ideas while standing up for people. And we, millions of liberals literally fail to understand this. And there's millions that do understand it. The ones that do, we need to amplify their voices. That's, that's, that's beautiful, man. Thank you, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Well, people tend to learn. The only way that people really learn from each other is if we communicate. And the real problem with re with the regressivism, especially particularly on the regressive left, is that rather than opening up a conversation and dealing with some of the various issues and on way to arriving at an understanding, certain group of people have decided it's easier to just suppress a conversation rather than open it up and have people to learn. We'd rather just use power when we can to prevent a conversation so to avoid any short-term consequences rather than open up a dialogue and really talk uh, which is the only way to actually overcome a problem over the long term and you're so also the to real avoid offending people that's well that, that, that's a short-term issue right. so we've been so focused on using power to suppress people to avoid a short-term <laughs> consequence such as offending someone we're so worried about that minor issue that we're ignoring the long-term solution and the only way to avoid to solve a problem over the long term is for us to understand each other. We can't do that without communication. And yes, communication will involve people being offended, but we're going to have to move past that yeah. if we want to make any progress as a society. Yeah, we got to build those so bridges. So I could say what it does to Europe. So in European politics, there's a, there are a lot of there are a lot more Muslims in Europe than there are in the United States, and there are a lot bigger minorities of them. And European politics have been very much big on like. If you say anything against Islam, it's branded as Islamophobia. Mm. So yeah, we get a lot of that. What here. It, so what it what has happened is that 
people have not been able to say bad things about Islam, so they got pent up hate for Islam. So they get a lot. They got a lot more negative feelings towards it, and they express it in subtle ways to the Muslim people who live in those countries. In hand, turning those Muslim people who live in in European countries even more extremist, even more like like clenching onto their is like Muslim and Islamic identities. So what it has created in Europe is basically a rise of not so right right wing, very anti like Islamophobic parties, which is a terrible thing. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. The problem in 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 the Western Europe. Uh, with among the rest, the main problem is that any criticism of Islam is deemed racist, and once you do that, you shut down any criticism of Islam that could possibly happen in the open sphere. That's gross and racist. So <laughs> and, and true. And so what, what that does you. is, th there is legitimate criticism of Islam that is not racist, just like there is legitimate criticism of all ideologies, religious and secular. And if you shut down the conversation of all criticism of Islam and try to accuse people who do criticize Islam as racist, what you therefore do is you prevent the legitimate criticism from Islam happening that is necessary for the reform that needs to take place within Islam. And what you thereby do is you enable the extremists and the negative elements in Islam and you allow them to persist. Can we so people like Ben Affleck, and C.J. Whirlman and Dean Obidala and many of these people on the left who are quick to point the finger at anybody who criticizes Islam as you're a racist, bigoted, <coughs> xenophobe, what they are indirectly doing, whether they intend to do so or not, is they're enablers of the negative elements in Islam because you can't call negative elements of Islam out, out because any attempt um, to do so Mike, is racist. So far we've all been alluding to the sort of fear criticism of Islam that a regressive leftist would um, be reluctant to admit. Can, everyone, can anyone think of a concrete example of where you would criticize Islam or something that's persistent in the Islamic world as a true progressive, if that's what you want to call yourself, where a regressive would be like, ah, I don't want to touch that. That's a little bit... So, so there have been, so there have been, yeah, there have been gay progress, regressive, I just saw Americans who have, pro, who have criticized, like, is people criticizing Islam because of Islamophobia, whereas they, I can guarantee, they as gay people could not be openly gay in almost any Muslim country in the world. So gay rights. Gay rights, clear example. yes, yes. This is seen as more of an objective moral standard, right? In this modern secular world, the same yeah. feminists who will be quick to criticize the Catholic Church ah, for not giving birth control pills or preventing women from access to abortion services mm -hmm. uh, will be terrified to criticize similar type behavior in any Islamic country, especially yeah. if she's a white Western feminist. Like yeah. genital mutilation? Genital no. mutilation, women not being able to drive cars, yeah, women yeah, needing a male escort to yeah, travel and outside. And we know we're personal friends with people, including a friend of mine from Saudi Arabia who's who's gay. He actually trolls ISIS with gay porn, which I, you know, the, the, the effects of that can be debated. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm on the receiving end of awesome. that a lot. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there, there, there's people that literally get more their pants in a wad, more from a Christian small business in Kansas refusing to bake a cake for an upper middle class gay couple, mm -hmm. they'll get more angry about that and more vocal than they ever will in their life about people that literally live in fear of, of exile or death in, in the Middle East for being gay. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this, 
this is a problem, and a lot of it is intellectual laziness and a lack of critical thinking. We oh. need the vocabulary, the ability to talk about this in a way that doesn't trample on human beings, admits there's complexity and that the Islamic world is fat, multifaceted and nuanced, while also honing in on the problem. People are too damn lazy and too damn um, cowardly to find ways to have these conversations, and that's where we got to, pardon the term, to, to tap into my military lexicon here, put the foot up the ass of people on both sides of the spectrum to find ways to navigate this conversational terrain and say, look, this is too important to screw around and not, be, you know, to think in binary terms. you got to go beyond black and white. So. And therein lies our problem. Yeah. How do you create the right kind of language and terminology and dialogue to convince enough people on the regressive left that it is okay to criticize Islam certain ways yeah. to allow for the kind of change we need to have, that we all want to have yeah. inside it. The, the, the necessary progression and uh, uh, enlightenment that we all want to occur inside Islam, yeah. which is going to require some criticism yeah. of how the vast majority of Muslims, uh, or at least the majority of Muslims in a lot of Muslim-majority countries, interpret yeah. the Quran right now. How yeah. do you create that dialogue without the regressive left is saying, oh, right. you're a racist? Because the only main, the only criticism coming out of, the, uh, of, of Islam that you primarily hear now is coming out of the far right. And le leftists don't want to be associated exactly. with the far right in any way, shape, or God, form. That, so you have idea. to put the wedge yeah. in the middle to so say the far right, yes, they, some of them at least, are indeed racist bigots yeah. who don't know how to criticize Islam <laughs> the right way. Here's the right way to criticize Islam that is the non-racist way. You nailed well, does that you necessarily I mean, matter? In ultimate, any given conversation, the most important element to have is your capacity to make an error in, in your conversation. So if two people are talking and once and one of the people feels, oh, I can't. If I make a point, I make a mistake. I can't back away from that, and there's all this pressure, and that person's be less likely to actually have a conversation. So what we're seeing is that the right, they have on their side, th their people, they can say certain things that are probably racist, probably problematic, or whatever the case is. But they're, they're, those group of people will tolerate that viewpoint. On the left, they, they feel that they're not allowed to make a mistake. And in any given conversation, and in this particular case talking about Islam, it's important for, for our society as a whole to allow for a, vari for like a racist screw-up or some kind of, if you assert a point and you let people debate it, and you end up being wrong about the original point, to not basically punish the person for making the original point, it's more important to have a situation where people can learn and have a focus being on evolving yeah. rather than trying to win an argument. Absolutely. And that's, that's really the big issue where on the right, they allow themselves to, sit, to get the racism out of their system. Yes, well, I'm a progressive. I, racism is wrong, at least in my opinion anyway. But they can come out. They can have that. They can have that. And we're not... All we're doing is telling them that they're wrong without trying to explain, one, why they're wrong, and two, address why they would even think that way. One yeah. quick point, though, Good is that point. there is a very fine line between legitimate criticism of Islam and where it does kind of blend into racist xenophobia. And yeah. it's very hard to straddle that line. Yeah. You know, I've seen atheist YouTubers, for example, criticize Islam where I think they go too far. Yeah. And they go, they go into what I would say are actual racism. Well, can I say, how does one go too far? Lack of by by, by saying things that, that is that is indeed racist, like saying that uh, people of the Middle East are inherently a certain way. 
You know, like it's not their culture and background. Or it's, it's a totally my entire point. Well, the Middle is East is not Islam. Yeah, the, the, the biggest right. Islamic yeah. country is in Asia, which is well, not the Middle East. My entire true, point know, is that yeah. we, we need point, to be though. more accepting of when people make mistakes like that. Yes, there, there are various people, especially on the right, they say a lot of racist things about Islam. And the, the, the view from the left, why we're talking about the regressive left, is that they're instantly, no, we have to shut down all criticism. Yeah. We can't I, let this come out. We have to. You have to understand that, yes, people are in, have inherently racist thoughts, and we need to understand that the only way we're going to get past this right. is if we talk about it's, it and have some yeah. tolerance for, the, the, unfortunately, the racism. My solution is to heal the regressive left people from the white guilt, from the guilt that they have from their past, their ancestors being slave owners, being, being like parts of the empires who treated other races and other people horribly. So if you heal them from that, there might be more things. If you can find a way to do that, I think it, yeah. Well, Raci yeah. Racism is bad, but in order to, if, if we're going to quote unquote end racism, it's not going to be through suppression. We have yeah. to talk about it, and the uh, and we have and yes, but when we talk about it, people are going to say racist things, and when that comes up, we have to put in the effort to address those things rather than suppress them. That's the only way we're going to move past it. Otherwise, we're still going to have these issues hundreds of years from now. Let me give a concrete example of this. So, for example, what you're saying is profound. So you take you take evolution and the, the idea that things evolve from the bottom up. You could take mixed martial arts and the laboratory of jujitsu and how it was an experiment that was allowed to play around with different ideas and see what works. In the same way, conversation has to evolve by enough people being willing to talk and have their views refined to be open to being wrong. And that requires people to be willing to speak their mind and then be open to criticism in a non-threatening way. So for example, critical thinking is our best weapon along with empathy. These are our best tools against racism. Let me give you a concrete example. Let's take someone in North Carolina where I worked for a while when I was broke after the military, was valeting cars, and there's a problem that, that some of our worst tips were coming from blacks. Now, there's people that were afraid to say this openly. They would never admit this, but they saw this pattern. Now, if someone's not allowed to ask the question, why are my tips being, you know, you, why is this happening? And they just buried inside them. They're going to hold these terrible views about black people and tipping. But if they're allowed to talk about it and expose themselves to critical thinking, then they can learn, well, maybe there's other reasons for this. Maybe it's socioeconomic. This is just one location. It doesn't reflect all black people. It also reflects different historical reasons. I mean, if they can't think their way through that problem, there's no way they're gonna overcome that internalized bigotry. And so people that wanna fight for going beyond racism must allow us to be willing to make mistakes and have these conversations. That is the only way, and that's this is the fight we gotta have for both the left and the right. And you make a good point about- <coughs> Are you saying black people don't tip? No, exactly. I'm not. That's the point. There's some great a tips. significant minority of them don't tip. Actually, as someone who used to be a waiter, uh, rednecks don't tip. That see exactly that right there can be a counterexample. Europeans don't tip. Yeah, <laughs> Europeans are the worst tippers. Gays are the best tippers. I'm probably gonna be labeled a bigot for saying that. <laughs> Maybe poor people have, give less than tip. Exactly. Actually, I've found. I think in my experience, poor people are the best tippers. Maybe probably more the emotional connection that they, they have more likely to, to feel capacity 
the feeling you're a shoes rather than someone who's super wealthy and doesn't have much of a connection. Yeah. So there are all maybe there is a racial, maybe it's a it's an economic issue. There could be a number of other issues. But unless we're willing to talk about it, unless we're willing to allow people to make mistakes, we're going to be talking about the same issues for the next hundreds of years, or maybe not if we keep on suppressing the, the conversation, suppressing the thought. Yeah. But we have to get the real issue that I have with the regressive left is about getting over the suppression. They're focused on suppression to avoid the short-term issues. The biggest one is criticism. But we have to get past that suppression, get used to making mistakes, and then work towards making solutions over the long term. That, that, that's really what we're so here to talk about. I have a question for the, for the group. Is moderate Islam moderate enough? Now, of course, this changes drastically depending on what country you consider. Let's say in America. Do we think that um, Muslims in America, are they as moderate as they should be to exist in this enlightened, I, modern community? I say absolutely yes. American Muslims have assimilated amazingly. They Amo have assimilated American amazing. Muslims so are among the, most, the world's most liberal Muslims. Yes, and other Muslims, they're the only places where they differ is that they put a lot more emphasis on family values and on, on community, on, like of, on not divorcing and actually committing to a partner, which are actually pretty good things. So, yes. I don't know about that. Um, what well, don't you know about <laughs> that? That's why research is good. It's good to ask questions. Be willing to have links well, later. The reason I brought it up is so because several surveys have, and Mike, yeah. you can answer this, of course. Yep. Several I'm the expert. Yeah, you are the expert on this. Uh, several surveys have been conducted over the years where moderate Muslims uh, in several countries around the world have said surprising things such as in Indonesia, where many supposedly moderate Muslims um, were all for Sharia law. They were all for a very sort of theocratic kind of government. If you want, I can pull up some, uh, statistics, do you some think, statistics. Do you think in America or anywhere else that Muslims would prefer if the government were more theocratic? I think that misses the point. It, morality is a constantly evolving factor. The, the way I view the various religious texts of any given religion as more of a snapshot of, of the time period's morality. And imagine morality as something that's not stacked, rather constantly evolving over time. And when you see people from religious apologists, religious extremists, atheists, whatever it is, it's basically people enacting the morality of their time period. And when you see people quote-unquote cherry-picking from religious texts or rejecting them or anything, they're taking their moral view, their moral views, and uh, looking at the stimuli from the from whatever society they live in, and they're combining all those things in their head, processing them, and using that to live their life. So when we were talking about moderates being more or less moderate, it's really a matter of okay, we have morality that's evolving. How much do we want it to evolve? How strictly do we want to interpret to abide by a given religious text? Well, in this well, case, the Quran. Andrew, let me give you a very concrete example. Okay. Okay. This is a very famous one. Many Muslims feel strongly about drawing images of Muhammad. Okay. Even moderate yes. American Muslims. Yeah, I'm aware. What, what should the general populace feel about this? What should our response be? Should our response be what the regressive leftists would say? That is, um, yeah, don't draw Muhammad. Or should it be, actually, no, you need to adapt 
it's okay to draw Muhammad. Leave us alone. We're going to do it. Like, the answer is to talk to the The answer is to talk to them about the it. Ladder, no, the latter is the correct answer. But the problem with the regressive left that they have is that they are so afraid to assert Western cultural values over people that have historically been dominated and oppressed by Western colonial powers. Right. And so they're afraid to tell brown people uh, with names that they, last names that they can't pronounce uh, that uh, we value free speech in a, in a more or less absolute sense, you know, that nothing is off the table for criticism. Regressive leftists are afraid to say that because when they say that, they feel that they are taking on the role of the Western colonial right. oppressor of the brown oppressed people. Right. And so they're too afraid. That's preventing to conversation. Right. John, I know, but that's, that's yes. the guilt complex. Yeah, I really like John. Lives. John, how do you feel about yeah, drawing? So, so uh, this is this is a very interesting thing. I mean, first of all, actually, I've been drawing since I was a kid. I got in trouble in high school because <laughs> I, I, you know, the movie Titanic where he drew the naked girl. I actually, I can yeah. do that. I can draw <laughs> almost as good as DiCaprio in that movie. So I've gotten in trouble. With you drew a nude things. picture and people. So yeah, I don't want to go into it, but. Uh, yeah, I, so I could, if I want to, I could certainly draw um, Muhammad. But so okay. I draw Muhammad every day. <laughs> oh, shame on you! No. So okay, here, here's the respectfully though. I'm getting better. In a glorious, <laughs> in a glorious I always, I always yeah. make his six pack. Listen in the Saudi yes. Arabian sun. Yes. Awesome. No, here, here's the thing. Nice. So, so big thing is, um, um, I, I think the uh, first of all, the, the thing about the, the there's legitimate concern about colonialism and oppression and top-down paternalism thinking that we have the answers, and, and that's a huge problem. And we could talk for hours about that on a separate show. That's a big thing. And then there's the fact that there are, you know, humans are made of stardust. We all came out of Africa. We, we, we want to flourish. We suffer. We, we share universal kind of neurobiological brain wiring, and we're all made of the same star stuff, right? To quote, kind of paraphrase Carl Sagan. So we all, you know, this idea that people in other cultures somehow don't mind being raped or killed or brutalized by governments or by the local religion or whatever that that's nonsense too and, and this creates a false dichotomy so when people on the left are like regressives don't want to be the colonial oppressors therefore they don't want to criticize anything in a culture that is the epitome of a black and white fallacy that is saying to avoid a I have to do B, and there's no option C. There's there's zero other options, and that's what we have false to fight. Dichotomies. It's so the false dichotomy. John, just it's to make it clear, clear where, where do you stand on drawing Muhammad? Yeah. So okay, the second thing is this is important. This is extremely important. Sorry. And so okay, um, I think the best approach, um, ultimately in the end, we should live in a society where we can draw Muhammad. We can draw cartoons, and not worry about being brutalized or killed or kicked off deplatformed or have our speech But taken. what if a religious person says right. it's an important part of their faith? Sure. So so here's my thing. I think we have to distinguish freedom to do something and the need to get people on the same page of a tolerant society, which is important. In the end, we should be able to draw Muhammad, and everyone should realize that. At the same time, we should respect individuals and people enough because they're because human beings are worthy of dignity. So there's times when, for example, I'm drawn from my military and my civilian experience traveling all over the world, whether I'm in Latin America or Afghanistan, Iraq or Africa or whatever, the Balkans or even in this country in certain parts of the, you know, there's times when there's certain historical stigmas, there's certain ways people feel genuinely offended. I don't give a shit about superficially offending people. If people are offended because of their political, because of political correctness or because of their egos, I want to, that makes me want to just dive into them all the more. However, if someone is genuinely 
hurt by something. I care about that person. And, and that's where you uncouple this. So on the one hand, we must fight for the right to draw Muhammad. We should also put our ear to the ground, listen to why people are offended by it. So I think the approach is somewhere between what you guys said. Well, how do we, how do we find out when certain values that Muslims have right. based on their beliefs well, are... I think I think suppose, yeah, you know, I think the sort of objective kind of yeah. So I think the best toolkit is skepticism. For example, multi-factor approaches. There's A, B, and C. Like you have colonialism, you have being people being stigmatized, and you have religion, and you have the text. When someone a Muslim is angry and they're on the cover of you know a certain magazine being offended by a cartoon, it could be for any number of these reasons or a combination skepticism and the ability to think critically and analyze these factors is the only way. It's, a no, it's all of these factors. So on the one hand, you have legitimate grievances of colonialism and racism and stuff like that. Then you have religious fanaticism and you have a combination of both where they catalyze. So we need to have the toolkit to be willing to be skeptical. So I think after a shooting or a riot, we should have a national day of skepticism or a national month of being skeptical. I'm skeptical about this. Yes, so skeptical well, day you of should skepticism. be. If we're going to evolve as a people, offense can't be a reason to stifle conversation. So about drawing Muhammad, we need to have the, the ability to draw whatever it is that we want. And yes, these people are, are offended by that, and the only way to get over it is to have the conversation, look, we live in, in a modern society now, we can't have offense being a cause for violence or a cause to suppress speech and we have to have this conversation with them, allow them to uh, express their emotional anger, yeah. and then we have to show them our point. So it's all about the conversation. So that's a good point. We are allowed to offend, but offend, take, but being offended is not an excuse for violence. Well, we, have, we have to explain that. We, we can't just say that and then force it down their throats. We have to explain this in a conversation, or else there's just going to be more pushback and less conversation. What if they so interpret their religion as an offense being an excuse for violence? Well, hold on. There, there, there's two aspects here uh, uh, that I, that I want to address mm -hmm. uh, that are relevant. Uh, one is cultural and, and moral relativism, right. yeah. which is rampant among the left. And that justifies their excuse for not criticizing people yeah. in Islamic uh, Muslim-majority countries. They're relativists. So they say, well, over here we allow women to drive cars mm -hmm. and ba have basic, more, you know, equal freedoms, more or less. Yeah. But in Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, they don't do that. But that's okay because morality is culturally relative. Yeah. So it's okay if men in, Sa in Afghanistan and Iran beat the shit out of their wives, yeah. but it's not okay here. As if there's so our, our morality yeah. ends at the U.S. border. As if there's some magic dust in the air that, that allows these women to enjoy getting the shit beat out of them. And I've been to these so countries. Mike, and there's, there's, there's one other point I want to mention. One other point yeah, is yeah. that there's, a, there's also a, 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 an irony and a hypocrisy here about the idea that drawing Muhammad offends Muslims that I find as an atheist because mm. if you read the Quran it says extremely insulting things about non-Muslims uh, the Quran says that uh, the most vile uh, animal in Allah's sight are those who disbelieve that's me that's everyone in this room we're all disbelievers in Islam we're the most vile animal in Allah's sight that means we're worse than pigs we're worse than rats we're worse than sewer cockroaches we're the worst thing that, that's alive I'm offended by that, but you know, I'm I'm not going to prevent uh, the Quran from being published. I'm not trying to ban it. 
I'm not going to prevent Muslims from saying that or reciting that in their houses of worship or their home or wherever. Yeah. They have the right to do so. It's a, uh, Freedom of speech is a two-way relationship. If yeah. you want to have a religion that says a lot of very degrading and negative things about non-believers, I'm okay with that. But you also have to be okay with me saying degrading things about your prophet or critical things about your religion and its philosophy. Yeah, and we could do that while And that's still something that a lot yeah. of uh, progressive left do not understand. They don't even know that the Quran says a lot of bad things. They understand and a lot of liberal yeah. Muslims and Muslims in general are uh, oblivious to this. And we could do this while still building genuine human rapport and relationships with, with people, with human beings. We can still do everything we can to respect Muslims as human beings and try to find out why certain people are suffering and to admit that the word Muslim and Islam and moderate are very nuanced and there's a spectrum of views. We can do everything we can to empower people and, and look at problems of human dignity while also criticizing bad ideas. That's a big problem. One of the big issues that I've seen is that morality, the way it evolved in various cultures, has been relative. But now, as we begin to increasingly globalize society with more interactions, it's come to the point where we as, as a planet have to uh, evolve our morality together, which historically hasn't been the case. Historically, various different cultures relatively kept from each other and they kind of, they evolved at their own different paces and that's why we see different uh, levels of morality in different areas now that we're all together we have to be able to tell the points that we've been making here to the other side and have it in a case where they can respond to with their points yes we can get angry at each other but then we keep going through it and we have to understand that this notion that yes we evolved separately but now we're together now that we're all here all of our destinies are tied I, we have to talk to, with each other i think what andrew and mike are alluding to is a sort of global constitution that there have like to be a UN Charter of Human Rights. Yeah, like a oh, what, what's that? I've heard of that one before. Anyway, but you're <laughs> <laughs> about seventy years too late. But okay, but yeah, maybe we need a new. We need to try again at doing that. As a global society, we need to yeah. say, look, n not in a philosophical sense, but in a very practical sense, we can't allow any country, any faith, to govern society to govern people in such a way that it conflicts with these universal yeah. ideas that we've discovered over time we could, you could you could you could phrase it that way that's fine however you want to phrase it is fine but we need to say as human beings we have universal global human rights right. and religion is not allowed to violate those rights uh, once you violate yeah. those rules we step in. And this is so important. This is where Majid and other people come in. And uh, this goes back, I was in, when I was in Iraq my second time in 2005 and six, and then at U.S. Central Command and Special Operations Command down in Tampa in, in 07. Or here, here's the thing, that I, I had this, I was very disillusioned by the lack of a, uni, uh, a sort of counter narrative within the Muslim world. It's not because there aren't millions of Muslims that really do want freedom and they want to prosper and they want to a genuine secular society they're out there but they did not have a unified platform so I had a proposal of you know maybe we should have a massive strategic information campaign driven by Muslims led by people on the ground not by the West but by the Muslim world as vague as that is to, to fight for secularism in the most basic way and I gave up on that because I didn't see it emerging and then I in recent times I have seen it re-emerging and I'm, I'm heavily supportive of that project the idea there is that 
promoting a basic separation between mosque and state, the ability to have a plurality of views and no one can foist any one version of Islam on people. That is the best thing for religion, is the best thing for Muslims, is the best thing if you're a person of faith. So, for example, if uh, I mean, you could look at every example of a the theocracy. They're all corrupt douchebags imposing you know, their own agenda on people and suppressing human well-being, and people that live there are miserable. This plays out horribly every time it's done. But John, how yeah. do you, how do you take it? How do you factor the account that some people right. willingly want to be yes. theocratic? So, so you, so you got to take countries. you got to take the wisdom of Jefferson and find a way that it can be locally owned and articulated within the culture by people on the ground. So you could take Al Azhar University in Egypt, or you could take you know Univers Al Anbar University in Iraq, or you could take Muslims in Europe. You got to find ways to have grassroots, locally led movements from the bottom up that are that are owned by Muslims, where they themselves find ways to argue this in ways that they understand and that resonate locally. So, for example, Thomas Jefferson had ideas about church and state, where religion and society are all better off if there's a wall of separation. How do you then find the core attributes of that and repackage it? For Islam, or and then not just for Islam, as vague as that is, but for each individual culture and for different. So, for example, you can argue for theocracy as a Muslim in ways that can pretty much debunk Islamists. There are ways to do this, and there are ways to repackage this in us using the Socratic method through logic. And there are ways, to, probably ways to put this into a phone app. I actually was somewhat influenced by a guy named Peter Bogosian in street epistemology for you know how do you then equip people on the ground to argue for theocracy at the dinner table on the streets of Cairo or in Iraq in the mosque or you know on news media to say if you're a Muslim the best thing to do is to have freedom by way of secularism but it has to be tailored to the local culture and you're right Mitch it's, it's a it's a very big challenge and this is going to require a convergence of expertise from behavioral science culture religion information. so you're saying yeah. we need to convince we need to convince theocrats yeah. to disavow this, to not yeah, yeah. Well, no, the there's, table. A, there's a couple things we can do here. You can try to permeate a meme uh, among Muslims that the restrictions that they have, like Sharia law, can be viewed as something like a diet. You know, if I don't want to eat donuts, that's right. something I impose on myself. Right. I don't impose it on you. Just because I'm not eating donuts, I don't force you to eat donuts. This is something that, that, that exists uh, uh, in, in Buddhism a lot. You know, you're not trying to impose other, uh, your views on other people. You impose yeah. it on yourself. It's like a self-imposed uh, sacrifice or vow you do. You can try to permeate that, that meme among Muslims as, hey, you don't want to drink mm. alcohol? You don't want to watch pornography? Okay, fine. Yeah. Do that to yourself, but don't try to impose that on other people. Right. Oh. Be, and you could try to also say that if you're trying to impose that on other people, it takes away the value exactly. of it. You know, it's it's more significant there if you impose no, that on yourself when grew. you're not if trying to. You're not being Absolutely. forced. Yeah, if you're if you're yeah. not drinking alcohol because the law is enforcing you to do that, versus you can drink all the alcohol all you want legally, but you you refrain from that personally, yeah. like a person on a diet who Absolutely. doesn't eat chocolate or donuts or whatever, that's more theologically significant to God. Yeah. You get that meme out what, there. What you're really yes. talking about is an evolution of the of the idea. See, historically speaking, these religions, they gain power through force. It was either you join this religion or you die. And that was how a lot of these guys gained their popularity 
uh, religions gain their popularity. Well, can, can I say and one well, thing really quick though? I uh, would just to, I mean, you could concede. I just want to yeah. say this might resonate especially well with with Muslims because they often say there is no compulsion in Islam. So well, that's, uh, yeah. there's ways that's around that. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's ways around that. Uh, well, well, they also Mecca, say Islam is a religion of peace, which also depends on the context. Yeah. But essentially, the way these religions evolved in their local habitats was through force. But in the modern era, that the way that growth strategy really doesn't work anymore. So what we're, what we're really asking is for these religions to evolve their morality, which is inherently against what, how religions grew so powerful mm. to begin with. It's also somewhat insulting to deeply believing religious people. You're saying, what, uh, what I believe now is backwards? I need to evolve myself to your standards? It's the answer is yeah. yes. Yeah. And we have to have we that conversation. We know that, but it's going to be difficult, at least for some people, to, to uh, Muslims at least, to, to get on board with that way of thinking. See, that's why we, we need tolerance for error. We need tolerance for the various racist views that are going to be spewed. We need tolerance for the various uh, emotional thoughts of, let's say, oh, I'm so frustrated with this person. Oh, I want violence, whatever. It's easy to the if we're going to have this conversation, what we're really asking for is for these groups whose local morality hasn't evolved to the point where the modern global world is. We're asking them to evolve, which is the exact opposite of how they grew. And the only way we're going to have that conversation is if we allow frustration to be there, we allow people to be offended, and we have a way to to handle that rather than simple suppression. Yeah, I agree. One, one thing that we can do is uh, we can permeate a lot of good, progressive, positive memes out there. One of them is that, you know, criticism of Islam is inherently not racist because it's a religion. We need everyone to get on board with that because there are still a lot of regressive leftists and, and Muslims and people of all different stripes who still confuse criticism of Islam with racism. Uh, one, one is the other meme of that, you know, if you want to be a good Muslim as you see it, you impose those vows of chastity or whatever on yourself. You don't impose them as other people. In other words, to, do, to get the vast majority of Muslims on board with what the vast majority of just about every other religious group has done uh, in, in the world. The majority of Christians now, if they take a vow of whatever, abstaining from premarital sex, for the most part, they want to impose that on themselves. You know, there is a minority of Christians who are trying to, you know, uh, who are dominionists, who are trying to get, you know, Christian law on the books. Yes, they exist, and there are there are there, there are Jews who do that as well in, in, in Israel, uh, for example. But the vast majority of Christians around the world uh, recognize that they there should be a separation of church and state or religion and government uh, in the more general sense. And we have to get that idea of general secularism to permeate through the Islamic world. That is like a first and necessary step yeah. in order for any kind of significant reform to take place. When we I'm going to try to rephrase that point. Essentially, I, the way I see what you're saying is that Christianity was essentially domesticated by Western laws. So they used to have the same aggressive growth policies of e either join us or die, etc. But then, what, as they evolved in the Western world and they sort of got integrated, they, they were essentially forced to domesticate and, and stop those methods of growing. 
right now we're seeing various sur surges in certain pockets of Islam where especially with Daesh aka ISIS join us or die and they, they've gotten back to, the, to that view and they're, fi they're fighting a lot of the forces that domesticated Christianity so we're, what we're really asking is now we live in a global society we're all together we, we have to come together and evolve together, and that's going to evolve changing the way that you've been used to doing things. But the, the, the religious fundamentalists, we can't keep doing things the way that you've been doing them historically. We have to change and then grow, and we have to bring them to the table. And that's, that's the only way we're, we're going to get through it. Christianity did it to an extent, and now we have to do it with Islam. Yeah, Correct. In a way that culturally, culturally resonates and is locally owned, and that's the key thing. It has to come from the bottom up, but people in the free world need to support it through a solidarity, and that's so important. This when kind we, of moral segregation has to When we state. say we, are we also including political action? Do we want politicians to enter this, not just as a conversation, but to actually take legislative action? I'm skeptical. And do something. That would be a whole separate conversation. I'm skeptical of government. I think politicians should pay lip service to it and then get the hell out of our way. However, if there are ways to, to support something or fund it, I think there's cases where that's very morally clear. Uh, overall, I'm skeptical of, of government not making things worse when it comes to foreign policy. However, I'm open to different. different well, what ways. I want to know is who is the we? Right. Who are the we? Yeah. That's just, actually going to do this. I'd say so. I'd say free society. When I, when I say we, I guess I'm talking about, and I articulate this in a, a short book I'm, I'm working to finish here. But the idea is that you have people in different spheres of expertise. You have IT and cyber that can provide cybersecurity to distance. People that are agnostic atheists, or they're Muslim reformers, or they're gay, or they're you know people speaking in the Muslim world in certain parts of you know in, in closed societies. They need a, a, a safe space, if there ever is a good use of that term, it's, it's here. They need the ability to talk about this across borders in a safe, secure way. You know, um, Bengali idea. bloggers are being hacked to death right now, and I have friends that, you know, are affected by this. Um, they need, you know, we need cybersecurity platforms where you can download it and find ways to scale this across the Muslim world. We have the, the intellectual and technological capital to help these people. So you have cybersecurity. You have applied social science and anthropology and culture. You have, so you're you know, suggesting we use cybersecurity to help people in countries where they don't have free speech yeah, or not free speech to the extent that we have yeah, in many Western countries. It's one example. So for example, so you, can, you can incubate, you know, the video game Flappy Bird on an iPhone, or someone can, you know, live in their mom's basement and come up with a good app for a phone and become a billionaire in Silicon Valley. We need that same. We need to unleash that same entrepreneurial spirit and that same intellectual capital to help people fighting for change in the Muslim world, whether it be liberal Muslims or um, secularist dissidents, people that, that want to make change. So for example, if we have people, uh, you know, you have feminists coming out, you have the next uh, Ayat Hirsi Ali, and you have many other, you know, people coming out talking as feminists in ways that endanger their livelihood and their lives, we have to find robust platforms to support them through physical security, through legal support, you know, and getting them assimilated, or um, not assimilated, I'm sorry, I misspoke, uh, getting them, you know, asylum and, and finding ways to give them transition so they don't get their head cut off. We also need cybersecurity. So I guess what I'm suggesting is we need a convergence of our expertise from cyber, legal, behavioral science, ways to support phone apps, ways to support strategic mass media communication. Legal but John, is there any yeah. way to truly safeguard someone 
who lives in a country that's right. less open-minded yeah when some you know progressive people actually right. want to have these frank conversations yeah it seems like all these protections would be pretty it limited i mean how it, much can yeah, they really they'll, they'll, do they'll, no they'll be very limited i mean sadly and i'm, I'm saying this from it's heartbreaking I've, I've seen this and you know for the most part we're not going to be able to help most people i think i think we're going to have to identify creative ways and try to improve on ways to to help people but we're never going to be able to help most people i think you could identify you know certain well-known distance and ways to securitize them and to crowdsource our knowledge our intellectual capital and our financial capital and really make this the new arms race the new space program to help support this and then to do that we need to win over enough hearts and minds in the west to say look this is a serious fight but the face of it should come from the from, you know from the muslim world so uh, people can't see this, but there's some awesome fans being waved here. Uh, do, what, does it, what does it say on yours? The I'm a Thomas Paine fan. Yeah, that was my fan. You, you, you appropriate. Thomas Paine was one of the greatest <laughs> uh, figures of the Enlightenment. Yeah, he was in my opinion, he was the greatest Englishman who ever lived. I still want to read Hitchens' book on Thomas Paine, but uh, yeah, yeah, very good, very good. And yeah, we need we to send like a million Thomas Paines to the. Muslim majority countries. Well, we yeah. get to do podcasts in the United States of America in the, in the safe confines of a house. We're secure. We know that the police aren't going to bust in and arrest us for having a podcast. We have necessary ground conditions here to express ourselves. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is we need to get the message out there, particularly on the internet, to a point where people living in repressive countries, where governments repress speech, they repress thought, to get to uh, allow them to get access to material like this, in order in order to get them their minds going, and it's unfortunately if you live in a country where it's harder to have conversations like what we're doing, there's going to be a more uh, element of danger involved in this, and we we need to do what we can to help minimize that, but more importantly we gotta give them the intellectual weapons that they're gonna need to fight yeah. because in a situation. Where you have a repressive government, who, who their their power source comes from suppression, the only we're going to have to pr provide those people the way to fight, and hopefully uh, this podcast. By the help. way, when Andrew said house, he meant fancy studio. We're <laughs> recording in a three point five million dollar studio. Yeah, and I totally not in, in someone's bedroom. Totally not. No, I, I'm not even drinking a bottled beer right now. I'm drinking from a very nice... We're drinking adult beverages. Uh, it's not most luxurious it's, adult it's beverages. It's non-alcoholic Islamic-friendly <laughs> beer. A non-alcoholic for a uh, mint julep is what I'm drinking right now. Very appropriate for a podcast. Yeah. So would you be saying then, Andrew, that one of the very first steps needs to be well, create like a dark net for people in Islamic countries so dark they can web? communicate. Oh, there's most definitely, there's yeah. already a dark net. Yeah, yeah. we have to get this information out or there into places where they can get it. But there, there also has to be a time, at, at the very least, where um, reformists, true reformist kind of Muslims can speak openly without the fear of being killed. Yeah. We have <laughs> to create a culture like that. Yeah. That is going to probably so, take generations. So it seems like yeah. we're saying freedom of speech is not an American idea. Yeah. It's not a... a uh, it's not a Western idea, right? This is one of those universal ideas, one of those objective ideas that Mike yeah. and Andrew 
This idea that we're earlier. the only ones that can appreciate this and other people. But don't we have to have that on paper? How can we be vague about this? It seems like we need to concretely say I, I think, I think freedom of speech yeah. is a universal human right well, and fuck your religion. It well, has priority over your religion. You first have to reject moral relativism in order to do that. There is. I'm, I'm actually a finishing a... A lot of atheists yeah. are afraid <laughs> to do. And liberals. Liberals hate... Right. Liberals love certain no certain liberals, certain liberals. Yeah, uh, I'm the majority, the majority of liberals. I, I would hope say, not. Well, the, the, point, true, the point that I'd want to get across is that morality may have evolved relatively, but now that we live in a globalized society, that's no longer the case. Morality is going to have to uh, transition from evolving at a relative state, which is how morality typically evolved, to now it's going to evolve at a global state, and where the people who are going to have to help transition that. And we need to get everyone on board with, with that concept. Yet, most people don't really understand even where kind of where morality comes from, how it evolves, etc. Well, simply getting that message out there and allowing it to dis to distribute and to resonate will be will be a big first step toward that. Yeah, I'm finishing a short. I'll have a research paper. I'm going to turn it into another, maybe a short book. But so this idea, if if anyone's seen, uh, for example, Sam Harris's TED Talk on the moral landscape or the book. The idea that, that people may have different ways to flourish, they may have, there's some sphere of relativism where people may not have the same <laughs> ideas of happiness, but at, at some level we all share the same, you know, human neural brain wire, and we all, they're, they're, we all aspire to happiness and well-being over suffering and misery. So the idea of mapping the moral landscape, how do you apply what we call human terrain mapping, and this goes back to what I did in Afghanistan and other places. The idea of putting your ear to the ground and being willing to listen to what people want and amplify their voice. And people like William Easterly, he's a leading economist, uh, kind of a counterpart to the conversation around people like Jeffrey Sachs when you talk about humanitarian global development. Well, we need better ways to find out what people want on the ground or respect the indigenous rights of the poor and the disenfranchised. How do we put our ear to the ground, listen to what people want? This could apply to a woman who wears a hijab or doesn't wear a hijab. Is it empowering to wear a hijab? Is it degrading to not to be ridiculed for wearing it? Or is it suppressive to have to wear it? It depends on the situation. It's not about hijab or no hijab. It's about being willing to listen to the aspirations of people and respect self-determination. We can map that out by being on the ground and listening to people, and there are tools to do that, and we need to have a conversation. And the majority of people have no idea about that. That's going to be another I, separate... Yeah. Well, well, for I, the record, John yeah. is wearing a hijab right now. Well, actually, I'm not, but I, I should be. Game of Thrones is a lot of hijab. Well, hey, we can choose to wear one or not to wear one. That's really what's important. Yeah. Whether you like it or you don't, you have to be able to choose. Maybe I want to go out in a hijab today. Okay, maybe I don't want to go out in a hijab tomorrow. Yeah. And being able to choose that versus banning it and outright or forcing people to wear it. Yeah. it it, what matters is, is choice. Well, free will, free will, sp speedo or no speedo for well, you. Well, back to Mike's point. I mean, it's nice to say we have to listen to the situation and everything, but the truth is, when we have government, for example, we have concrete laws that are written down in books, stored on paper documents and on computers that say you can do this, but you can't do that. So I think, regardless of what whatever what anyone's philosophical viewpoint might be right. on the origins of morality or as Andrew pointed out historically yeah. what most people view morality as yeah. we do need to strive for some practical universal standard and I yeah. think we need to concretely say freedom of speech for example Absolutely. universal human rights 
Yeah, I was actually, things like that. Yeah. We need to, we can't be vague. If we're vague, yeah. this this sort of vicious cycle will perpetuate forever. Yeah, we have, we have to explain what modern morality means. You need to explain what we want. What forget what it means. We have to explain what we want it to be. I think that's even more important. So, re- so regardless of what your opinion is on morality, we're saying, forget your opinion. This is what it's going to be now. There's another aspect to this, and that is uh, something that uh, those on the left are uh, have a really hard time understanding, though. And that is that when you're talking about Islam, there is a slight difference between talking about Islam and other religions. In that, theologically speaking, the mainstream view in Islam has always been that the Quran is the literal word of God. It is the transcribed word of God. Whereas the Bible and the Torah are the inspired words of God. They're man's take from an inspiration that happened in the past. And it's not the literal verbatim word of God unless God's quoted in it. But the, the entire Quran from cover to cover is the literal word of God. And because of that, because of that's the mainstream view in Islam, and it has been since its inception, pretty much. Uh, it is a lot more difficult to reinterpret the Quran in a more liberal way that deviates tremendously or significantly from yeah. the literal interpretation of it. If the Quran says X, it's hard to have uh, an interpretation of X apostrophe or x star you know that's like oh x yeah but you know that's not really what it means it means this and we're reinterpreting it in a much more modern light it's uh, that and that's the inherent challenge we have in islam that we we generally don't have as much in most other religions in the world and so it in order for secularism or free or universal freedom of speech to get a foothold in the islamic world we're up against a very significant minority or majority of Muslims who are terrified of that idea because they're afraid that allowing secularism or free speech to get even the tiniest toe in the door is going to eventually open up the floodgates of tremendous amount of criticism of Islam and then their power as Islamists is going to be done from that point on and they're going to hold on as strong as they can and as tight as they can to keeping all other interpretations of Islam totally out the door and locked out forever. Yeah, and one thing people are going to say in response to this, I can already see it, they're going to say, why aren't you talking about the invasion, you know, invasion of Iraq or Arab governments and oppressive dictators? These are all huge problems, blowback and second, third order effects. I've seen this firsthand, we, you know, I've, I'm well versed in the problem of what they call, you know, ripple effects or unintended consequences. So foreign policy, and the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Ottoman Empire, top-down colonialism. These are all big factors. We're not denying this. This is a multifactorial problem. However, the, admitting that there are problems from the top-down via Arab dictators and Western you know, invasions and stuff like that, admitting that's a problem doesn't nullify the fact that there's also problems from the bottom up in terms of the ability to have a conversation. These are both prevalent, and we need people to talk about both. And I just want to throw that out there because I can already see people gunning for this saying why aren't you talking about this we have a whole separate podcast on the issue of bad foreign policy it's not a false dichotomy and that black and white fallacy something we got to move past yeah i uh i wrote a short list of things that uh you should say as a prerequisite before having a conversation like this with a member of the regressive (laughs) nice that acknowledges a lot of the things you just mentioned 
And here's what you should say. It's best, I mean, you're not going to remember this, you know, uh, in an in a informal, you know, uh, in-person conversation. But at least on the internet, if you're having a conversation with a regressive left leftist, in order to preempt many of the most common <laughs> things that That's they bring awesome. up, you can say this. This is about ten bullet points I have. You can say, yes, I'm fully aware that not all Muslims are terrorists, and not all terrorists are Muslims, because they will try to accuse you of that. Nice. You can say, yes, I'm fully aware that the vast majority of Muslims are not violent. Yes, I'm fully aware that Christians have committed violence in the name <laughs> of their religion. Yes, I'm fully aware that the Bible has many violent and sexist verses in it. Yes, I'm fully aware that the U.S. government has done many terrible things in its foreign policy. Amen. No, I am not <laughs> saying that Islam is the root of all evil or that religion is the cause of every problem in the world. <laughs> Although it no, is. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm not suggesting that we kill all Muslims or <laughs> civilians. No, I'm not suggesting we discriminate against all people from the <coughs> Middle East or South Asia. And no, I'm not suggesting that there is something inherently violent about Muslims. This is not exaggerated. These talking yeah. points actually are They come are up needed. every... Yeah. One of those, at least one of those, yeah. comes up every single time you, you have a conversation a with a repressor. Because they're trying to dodge the conversation yes. rather than have yeah. it. And those suppression <laughs> tactics that we're trying to overcome right now. Yeah. We could do a pattern analysis and just show the ways to deflect this and make it into an algorithm. I mean, this is great. So, yeah. Well, folks, we're about running out of time, so it's plug time. Cool. We're going to go around the room. Anybody wants to plug anything can. Andrew, what would you like to plug? Well, over the next couple of months, I'm going to be starting a blog called AJD Concepts, where I'm going to be laying out sort of a, a, a philosophical framework on how to tackle various issues. Those issues can be social issues, they can be issues of family, issues, issues of economics and finance even. And showing basically, how do you think, how do you uh, take stimuli, uh, analyze it, and apply it in your life to make your life better? So look for that in the, within the next two months or so. Yeah, we'll get a link. We'll put it out there. Uh, Handjob Mike, what would you like to plug? <laughs> well, hold on. My hands are... Uh, my hands are... Uh, hold on. Get my hands ready. All right. Uh, I'm going to plug my blog, which is called atheismandthecity.com. And uh, I, it, my, my vision for this blog, I focus on mainly atheistic counter-apologetics to religion. So what I do is I take out... I take down religious arguments and I deconstruct them and I show them why they're false and I also make positive arguments for atheism and naturalism. And so my hope for this is that some college kid who is out there who is accosted by some campus uh, Christian apologist or Muslim apologist wants to go back to their room and do some research on the arguments that they just heard, stumbles upon my blog and can find good counter arguments to what they just heard. So that's what I mainly focus on. I also talk about uh, philosophy and morality and uh, mainly issues related to uh, atheism and naturalism and, and religious arguments. So yeah, atheismandthecity.com. And Handjob Mike is just eating up all of our plug time. I'm kidding. No, Mitch, okay. Mitch J, what would you like to plug? Free will doesn't exist. Freewillisfalse.com. Also look out for a new not-for-profit that I've started, IFWRO. The International Free Will Refutation Organization. This guy's a badass when talking about free will, I can tell you that. Ugna, would you like to plug anything? About free will? About any, anything. What would you like to promote out of anything out there? Other than my bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Is that I believe that humans should connect in terms of uh, values, not religious or nationalistic identities that they have. Fair enough. 
Because it's much easier to bridge the gap then. Because you realize that you have a lot of values in common. Heathen! Me? <laughs> Angus, our legal department. You don't want to plug anything? No, I got nothing. Lord Kerbo. <laughs> yeah. <you> like <laughs> Lord Kerbo. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, no, I, I founded a movement called, it's a grassroots thing called Reason Revival. The idea is that people tend to, we avoid talking about reason and rationality when it comes to politics. So, I'm promoting something, and I'd like to build this across universities and across the media called the Reason Challenge. And someone may have thought of the name already, I'm not sure. But the idea is like the Gracie Challenge with jujitsu and mixed martial arts. Let's pit ideology and dogmatism on the left and the right against reason, free thinking, and science. The idea there is you take an issue like Black Lives Matter or police or communities or sexism, gender, uh, bigotry, Muslims, etc. Take an issue of this very sensitive social about human well-being and human suffering and try to see which vehicle is better for arriving at answers. Either scientific rational thinking combined with genuine human compassion or ideologically rigid platforms and dogmatism, whether it's the left, the right, etc. Let's pit the uh, social justice warriors or the right-wing conservatives. You know, let's try to get them in conversation with rational free thinkers and see what's a better way to arrive at answers. More on that down the road, but that is a project we need to scale across this country. So, All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Woo. Caitlin, would you like to plug anything? No. <laughs> it's the Caitlin Show. <laughs> Sorry. All right, folks. Well, I've been your host, Lee Moore, and I would like to plug Gotham Atheists. If you're ever in New York and you want to meet up with some atheists, check us out on meetup.com. Come out Friday nights for our, our event, Drinking with Atheists. It's every Friday. Get drunk, socialize, be friends, make friends, be silly. Just enjoy yourselves and discover hang out with the fact. Hang job, Mike. Hang, hang out with hand job, Mike. We all, every last one of us here, has been to a drinking with atheists, some more than others. But uh, yeah, it's just a great time to meet your fellow free thinkers and party on. I'd also like to plug our sponsor, which we don't have one. So if you'd like to be our sponsor or a sponsor for the show, let us know and uh, give us all your money, and we'll plug whatever dumbass thing you want us to sell. And we're totally going to make fun of you for giving us your money and trying to get us to sell your product. <laughs> and on that note, you have listened to the Firebrands, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in next week for another wonderfully, terribly, intellectually terrifying episode. And that's it. We're done. Hail Sagan. Hail Sagan. Oh,